Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. Thanks for checking out an episode of Refine Your Health. Many of you are aware of how we are constantly being bombarded by the media with information about COVID-19. Everything from the rising number of cases and deaths to the potential treatments and our preventive measures on the horizon for COVID-19. So I'm a bit of a Wizard of Oz fan. So the focus of this episode is COVID-19, antivirals and antibodies and vaccines. Oh, my. Mainly, I chose this focus on this area because there's an overwhelming amount of information on this topic, especially in the media. Therefore, I hope to simplify some of that information with the help of my very special guest, Dr. Christopher Barnes. Dr. Barnes is currently a Howard Hughes Medical Institute Hannah Gray Postdoctoral Fellow at the California Institute of Technology. As a native North Carolinian, Dr. Barnes completed his undergraduate studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, double majoring in chemistry and psychology. He later earned a master's in chemistry at UNC before moving on to earn his Ph.D. in molecular pharmacology from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. In 2017, Dr. Barnes moved to Pasadena, California to begin his work as a postdoctoral fellow. Here, Dr. Barnes investigates structural correlates of antibody-mediated neutralization of HIV-1 and more recently SARS-CoV-2, or better known as COVID-19. With extensive training and well over 20 publications in some of the top journals worldwide, Dr. Barnes will soon look to start his own lab as an assistant professor of biology at Stanford University in pursuit of new therapies to change the world for the better. Hello, Dr. Barnes. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Hello. Nice to meet you. So before we get started, I just wanted to ask you a question about something interesting that I came across while I was reading different articles on your amazing research, which you have been conducting. I just want to know, is it true that before you became a postdoctoral fellow, that when you were younger, you initially wanted to become a well-renowned chef? (laughs) That is uh, very much true. You know, I think that started my curiosity and experimentation, uh, which started in the kitchen. Uh, you know, I think I've been around food all my life. My mother, you know, was a stay-at-home mom and, and cooked meals all day, every day. And I was always around her. So I was always in the kitchen. But that, you know, that curiosity of learning how to cook, you know, really set a fire in me. And so I used to watch uh, Discovery Channel. They had this show called Great Shelves of the World. And they would show how these recipes would be made and these, you know, plates would be made. And yeah, so I would write down all the ingredients and want to go back into the kitchen and try to recreate these meals myself, not knowing how much some of these ingredients cost. Uh, you know, they're talking about truffles and, you know, cooking with wines and all this kind of oh. stuff. So I was like, here, mom, can you go buy this for me? And it's just like, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's expensive. Truffles for sure. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. but I, I still love to cook, though. I mean, it's, it's my, my go-to relaxation to experiment, create in the kitchen. So, yeah, I still dabble a little bit in the kitchen. (laughs) Wow, I bet your family loves that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So how and when did you make that drastic change? Uh, So, yeah, my career journey to get to where I am now had many twists and turns. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. as many people in the Black community, especially when you think about and you hear the word doctor, 
don't really think about a PhD, right? We, we think more aligns with MD, you know, going to be a medical doctor. Uh, and so I had aspirations to do the same when I went to undergraduate at University of North Carolina. And, you know, it was there that, you know, I began to understand that research was a component uh, to becoming a doctor. And so I joined the lab, you know, at the end of my sophomore year. And it was there that I really began to appreciate research. So my advisor, Dr. Gary Pilak, who's still at UNC teaching and running a lab, he really instilled in me an idea about creativity and innovation that can come from being a researcher. Uh, And so that really spurred me and changed my path from being an MD to a PhD because his his most famous line to me uh, was, why just do a procedure every single day when you can be the person creating the cure? Uh, and that really stuck with me. Uh, and I, I really took that to heart. And, you know, so that really started me on the path towards a PhD in research. Wow. That's an amazing journey. I'm happy for sure. And I'm sure many others are happy that you chose this career path because you're doing so much uh, important work regarding, especially what we're dealing with right now in the pandemic, COVID-19. And so that being said, what are you currently working on now as far as your research in regards to COVID-19? Yeah, uh, so we're uh, here at Caltech in the lab of Pamela Bjorkman. Uh, we've been uh, studying how antibodies uh, that have been isolated from those individuals that have recovered from COVID-19 infection, uh, how they might be utilized to help prevent and treat those currently, you know, currently being inflicted with this, uh, with this virus. And so the, we work with a lab out of New York by, uh, at Rockefeller University. Uh, and what they do is they recruit individuals, they recruit recovered uh, uh, patients uh, to, to donate their plasma, right, to donate their blood uh, and their plasma. So we've heard a lot about convalescent plasma and, you know, that is a potential treatment. Uh, so what we're doing, not only trying to understand what in convalescent plasma is helping you recover, uh, but to also move a step ahead and say, okay, well, how can we isolate those components? And then can we recreate those components uh, as a synthetic treatment or therapy? Uh, and so my research focuses on understanding exactly how these proteins, these antibodies, right? So these antibodies are nothing but proteins in your blood that attack the virus. Uh, so my uh, research focuses on how those antibodies know, really attack the virus and how we can understand that mechanism so that way we can engineer it to be even better. Okay. So what is COVID-19? So yeah, so COVID-19 is actually the the disease caused by the virus, which is SARS-CoV-2. And so uh, SARS-CoV-2 is actually a coronavirus. And just so everyone knows, you know, coronaviruses are, are common viruses. You know, a lot of common colds are caused by coronaviruses yearly. So we all have probably likely been exposed to a coronavirus in the past. For the most part, it just gives you a common cold and you recover. But certain coronaviruses, such as the one we're currently being inflicted with now in this pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, and its related cousin, uh, SARS, can lead to more, you know, more fatality, right? They can lead to worse infections than their, their related family members that just lead to the common cold. So yeah, so a coronavirus is nothing more than an envelope virus. Uh, it has an RNA genome. And, you know, for the most part, you know, this allows us to understand, we know a lot about its life cycle, how it enters the body, what, you know, what proteins on the surface of your cells it interacts with in order to infect you. So yeah, so that's uh, COVID-19 is just a resulting you know, disease that comes about from this infection of this virus. 
So you're saying like um, you mentioned that, okay, there are many coronaviruses that are out there and um, and some of them have been potentially causing common colds. How do you think this particular virus came about? Is it like a mutation of the current coronavirus or is it just something all new in itself? Yeah, it's, it's uh, new in itself. So there, there are similarities in the shape of these viruses. So they all look the same. Uh, they all have the same general, you know, architecture uh, in that they have this huge protein on the surface, this spike protein that some of you may have heard about in the media. Uh, and this spike protein is what's driving the initial interaction with your body cells to lead to the infection. And so if you, if you isolate those proteins, uh, they all look very similar. Uh, but because of differences in their sequence, you know, we can begin to group those that are more likely the same versus different, right? So the common cold viruses, sequence-wise, the sequence, you know, the genetic level look very different than what we are currently being infected with, right? So, mm-hmm. and so this could lead to differences in the way the virus replicates its target cell, you know, where is it actually infecting? And so in the case of SARS-CoV-2, right, its target cell are cells in the, in the lungs, right, uh, upper airway cells. And any infection within the, you know, within the lungs is, is potentially detrimental uh, for human health. And so this is something that, you know, is really the hallmark of SARS coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and another one called MERS that we, you know, that the outbreak occurred back in 2009. And so these infect cells in the upper airways in the lungs, which then leads to responses by your body, which can lead to pneumonia and all sorts of side effects that are are detrimental and can lead to fatalities. So you said it it attacks our body. So what does it look like and what in particular in our body that it attacks that causes the symptoms that the outward producing symptoms of like the cough, the shortness of breath, the fever, etc.? Right. So, you know, you have to think about an infection and what happens in any type of infection, uh, whether it be with SARS-CoV-2 or a common cold or the flu or anything else. Right. So when you get infected, your body automatically produces a response. And this is your immune response. Right. And so the fevers, the aches, the pains, the chills. Right. That's your body responding to an infection. And this is something that, you know, a lot of people think are symptoms, but it's actually your body trying to fight off the virus or fight off whatever infection, whether it be bacterial or viral, uh, that's, that's happening to you. And so when you think about, you know, the cells that it's entering, well, the body's response is going to be focused on that area where the infection, where the virus is replicating, right? So if you have virus replicating in your lungs, uh, mm-hmm. then the response from your immune system is going to be targeting your lungs, right? And so this is what leads to inflammation in the lungs. Inflammation leads to shortness of breath, coughing. Uh, you know, mucosal buildup, you know, things that, you know, is your body's response to an infection that is trying to utilize to clear out the virus. So, yeah, so because it's targeting, you know, cells in the lungs, you know, this is why you get these types of symptoms. Gotcha. Uh, the runny nose and all that kind of stuff, too. I mean, that's when you think mm-hmm. about the common cold, uh, usually it's in the, the nasal region, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. really go into the airways of the lungs. And so what do you get? You get the runny nose, the fever, uh, maybe a little, you know, teary-eyed because it's targeting the cells within uh, your facial nasal uh, pharyngeal region versus the actual upper airways and lower airways of the lungs. So since it's um, attacking the lungs, I'm, I'm assuming that's why we're hearing so much in the in the news and the media in general that people uh, who have become infected with COVID-19 is having the scarring in their lungs as a result of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think, you know, 
one thing to talk about, you know, as it relates to people that succumb to more severe COVID-19, uh, right? They are, these are typically people that are experiencing a lot more lung damage and, you know, your body is really attacking and pushing, you know, uh, response in the lungs, right? So you don't, you really don't want to have huge immune response in your lungs, right? That can lead to mm-hmm. pneumonia, that can lead to all these bad side effects that you don't want. And so I think that's what you're seeing, right? You're seeing signs of viral pneumonia uh, in, in these patients uh, through autopsies, as well as, you know, just through CT scans of, of their lungs, right? You're seeing, you know, this, this immune response to your lungs. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, long term, this could lead to scarring. This could lead to other, I mean, I'm not an MD, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> like in that t- sense. Uh, um, but yeah, but if you have a response in a certain area, then of course you can have tissue damage to that area, uh, which could be long-term. Okay. And do you understand um, how this is spread, like COVID-19 is spread among individuals? Yeah. I mean, I think now within the scientific community, there is consensus that, you know, this is an airborne virus that spread through coughing, through aerosolized droplets. You know, it does, it can linger on surfaces. Uh, so, you know, the, the point of wearing a mask is to help prevent the spread through coughing, through aerosolization of the virus, since it is in your lung airway, right? As you talk, as you speak, as you sing, as you cough, sneeze, right? It's going to come out if you are infected. So wearing a mask definitely helps prevent the spread through that sense. Uh, obviously, washing your hands uh, helps prevent the spread as you, you know, we every single day we touch our face so many, so many different times. Uh, and so if you are con- constantly uh, in the presence of someone that has virus and or touching things that have virus on them, there's potential there for spread for the general population. And for in the easiest sense of the way it spreads is definitely airborne through communication, being in the room where people are talking, uh, you're interacting face-to-face with someone that has the virus. Um, And unfortunately about this virus, one reason it's spread worldwide so rapidly is the idea that it spreads before symptom onset, right? And and this is something that, you know, is not common among viruses, is not common among infections. But the fact Mm -hmm. that you can have spread, you know, a day or even two days prior to showing symptoms of this virus, you know, makes it much harder to, uh, much harder to deal with. Okay. And just looking at some of the reports from different scientists, I think the views have differed on how long they think that the virus can linger in the um, environment. So what has been the consensus that you've been hearing about how long it can linger in a particular area? Uh, So I think that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, It Mm -hmm. depends on a lot of different, a lot of different variables, a lot of different factors, airflow Mm -hmm. being one of them. Uh, Obviously, a highly ventilated area is going to allow dilution of any viral particles uh, much faster than if you're sitting in a place that has very stagnant air. So it's, again, that's hard. That's a hard question to answer. Uh, Also, Mm -hmm. depends on how much virus is actually, you know, I guess at the beginning, how much virus is actually uh, let out by individual, right? So a sneeze in a room is much different than someone saying hello or just sitting mm-hmm. in the room and breathing, right? So so all these facts are variables that, you know, that you have to take into account. But I guess there's anywhere from reports of an hour to three hours, uh, you know, from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, this is, this is something that's not as black and white as saying, well, if I've been in a room for, you know, three hours after someone that just coughed and sneezed in that room, I'm okay. Like it's, it's not as black and white as that, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I can't, you know, really say more than that. 
Yeah. And that's what I've been seeing too, like on average three hours. But I think the important thing that you mentioned is that if you're in enclosed space, if it's ventilated well, um, and how long are you within that area? So um, I think that makes sense that it can vary in basically your exposure to COVID-19. So there are different tests available to diagnose potentially COVID-19. And I just wanted to get some uh, information from your perspective about the different testing. Uh, I always get this um, question a lot uh, from different people. And one is the one for the, the viral test and then the one which is the antibody test. Can you explain the difference between those and is one more reliable than the other? Right. So there's a lot of talking about testing and our need to increase the capacity to test and exactly what type of tests should we increase the capacity to return to quote unquote normal. So there's two tests, as you just described, that we think about that we hear about. One is the PCR test. And so that's the the nasal swab in the back of your, you know, that touches your brain, mm-hmm. uh, basically, right? And then we, you know, run PCR on that. So that is the more common test that was done at the very beginning. So the PCR test is a very sensitive test. I mean, it can pick up very low levels of virus. And, you know, and for the most case, it's going to be an accurate test. And that, you know, if you are positive, even at very low levels, you're most likely going to be confirmed positive uh, from a PCR test. So that's the most reliable, most accurate, most sensitive test. Uh, the antibody test, you know, is something that, you know, is somewhere that occurs later, right? So if you think about the response, to a viral infection, you know, it takes about a week to produce, um, you know, antibodies at the level they are detectable, or in this case, a certain type of antibody. So upon an initial infection, you're going to get, you know, low levels of, you know, there's three isotypes of three kinds of antibodies Mm -hmm. uh, called IgM, IgA, and IgG. There's also more, but these are the three, you know, they're they're common among these tests. So uh, IgM positive person means this is the first level of antibody that is likely to be detectable upon initial infection, followed by IgAs and IgGs, right? So, you know, kind of like a pregnancy test, you know, you're, you're looking for certain ho- hormones. Uh, mm-hmm. So at the very beginning, you might see a spike in one hormone that suggests you may be pregnant, but then you're going to later confirm it with uh, another pregnancy test that looks for a second hormone, right? So mm-hmm. it's checking, you know, throughout the course of infection, uh, the development you know, in the case of these antibody tests to to the virus, right? So if you see an IgM positive person, likely they have virus, but then you're going to again want to look at an IgG positive person, they're also again likely going to have virus. Uh, the thing with these antibody tests is that they are a little bit less sensitive uh, because it requires you to have uh, active infection and high levels of antibodies uh, in your blood or saliva. And, you know, it has to be very specific to the coronavirus. Uh, and so that is something that people are, are, are looking at. It's like, make sure that obviously we have antibodies for many different uh, viruses that are circulating in our body at any given time, right? So make sure that the antibody response that is going to be show you as a positive test is very specific to uh, coronavirus. So this is why there's been some controversy on rolling out more antibody tests uh, mm-hmm. because of the fact that there is potential there for it to be a false negative, which is not ideal. But on that side, you know, the more you test, you kind of negate these false negatives, right? So if you have a paper test, if you have an antigen test that you can take daily or every other day, say you're negative on Monday, but then you come back and test again on Wednesday and it's positive, right? Where then you mm-hmm. take another test and that shows positive, then you're most likely positive, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what people sometimes do is they'll take an antibody test, say I'm negative, 
mm-hmm. it may not follow up, right? So you you might want to follow up with a, a test. It may not be as sensitive as the PCR test, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of push. I mean, I read a little bit of literature on paper testing and the need to increase uh, the capacity for which we test on a daily basis. Because if you take a less sensitive test, this is work by Michael Mina at, um, at Harvard, uh, been a number of papers published and, and reports on his work. But if you take a number of paper tests uh, that are cheap to make and say 70% uh, accurate, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If you can take the test 10 times in a day because it only costs $5 to make and take, it's going to confirm the positive uh, if you are positive. And so, I mean, this is, and this is something that, again, um, there's been a lot of push on how do we get to the point of giving administering tests that's going to actually be reflective of uh, someone that has the potential to spread. Uh, so there's a lot more that goes into this, but yeah, I mean, so the PCR test is your, your bread and butter, very sensitive, uh, but it's costly. So there's been a push to promote more, you know, cheaper, less sensitive tests, but because they're cheaper, you can take them more routinely. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, to pick up the positives. Okay. And so the more rapid tests that we're seeing, like the quick 15 minute tests, I think there was one particular company that was putting one out and they were saying like, you know, 15 minutes. So is that the antibody testing that you are referring to? Yeah. So there's another test. There's a thing called a lamp test. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's like PCR, but instead of actually getting a ban on a jail or understanding like, you know, replicating DNA, uh, it's just a colorimetric coloric, uh, test in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, you it begin, it has the same enzymes and stuff that is going to be necessary for amplifying the virus. Uh, mm-hmm. But it also has a color indicator in it. So if you reach a level, it changes color. So these are called lamp tests, uh, mm-hmm. and they'll can be a little, go a little bit faster uh, mm-hmm. than your PCR tests. So yeah, so there's multiple tests out there. So the okay. 15 minute ones, some of them have been lamp tests, some have been antigen tests. Uh, so yeah, it just depends on which one you're actually referring to. Gotcha. And so with those rapid testing and the antibody testing, you're saying they're potentially less sensitive. Is my understanding? Is that correct? Right. So uh, the key here, you know, and this gets into the science behind testing and mm-hmm. why we think, you know, these other tests may be better. Uh, so the PCR test, like I said, is more sensitive in the sense that, you know, say you need a level of virus to be able to be what we consider trans, you know, transmissible, right? Mm-hmm. And say this number is, um, you know, 35, right? So this is what we call a cycle threshold. So this is the real number. So like a, a cycle threshold of 35, for instance, anything 35 and lower uh, mm-hmm. means that you have enough virus, you know, in you that you have the ability to potentially spread that virus. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so these are the people you want to figure out, you know, who these people are, because those are the ones that are the potential spreaders, right? But a PCR test can pick up cycle thresholds uh, above 35, right? So these are people that may be infected with the virus, but they may not be able to actually spread the virus, um, mm-hmm. you know, based off of our understanding of the level of virus you need to be able to spread it, right? So but the PCR test, right? So you may pick up someone that say has a has this value of equal to forty, right? That value is you know far removed from the thirty five that is the limit of of spread. I say this because the antibody tests most likely you're going to be picking up people that are potential spreaders, and yeah, that's okay. why you know there's been a push there because yes they're less sensitive, but because they're less sensitive, 
that requires more virus to be there in order for you to actually see it on a test. All right. So therefore, those people are likely the ones to be spraying the virus. Uh, and that's why there's a push there to, to utilize these types of tests uh, to root out those individuals. Okay. And can you explain, um, you mentioned a false negative on a potential test. What does that mean? And can you clarify that for my you know, listeners? Yeah, yeah. So a false negative means that the person is, is in actually, in fact, uh, infected with the virus, but their results come back negative. Uh, maybe because, you know, in the case of a PCR test, you know, the components of it didn't work quite, quite properly, right? They didn't, they didn't work out um, like they should have. In the case of an antigen test, it's because, right, it's below the, the threshold of detection. So these people could be indeed infected with the virus, but because they're uh, negative, it, it shows up as a false negative just because of the level of detection of these tests. Gotcha. So we know that there are currently no known medicines that can prevent or treat COVID-19 at this point. However, people are receiving supportive type of treatments, such as the convalescent plasma that you mentioned, antivirals, as well as monoclonal antibodies. So you kind of already touched on what convalescent plasma is. And can you explain that again and how that is beneficial to patients that may receive convalescent plasma who have been infected with COVID-19? Yeah. Um, So in the case of a viral infection, right, you as an individual, for the most part, um, a lot of people are going to recover by themselves uh, after dealing with the symptoms for a week or so. But during the course of your infection, right, your body is going to mount the, re- the defenses, right? It's going to mount the response to help you get better. Uh, mm-hmm. And so in this case, uh, convalescent plasma is plasma that's being taken from those people that have already recovered, right? So these are people that have naturally fall off the infection and now their blood, you know, their plasma. So plasma is a component of the blood uh, mm-hmm. for everyone. So, you know, their plasma is going to be enriched with all these defenses, right? All these proteins that help fight the virus, right? All these antibodies. And so the idea here is that you can then take it from one person who's recovered and give it to someone that is now sick and give their body a boost to help with the recovery process. So that's the idea behind convalescent plasma. The monoclonal antibodies is basically taking that one step further, right? So in the case of a plasma, it's just a mixture of proteins. You don't know which one is going to be the best at defeating the virus, uh, is going to mount the best defense against the virus. In the case of monoclonal antibodies, we have determined uh, through laboratory experiments which antibody is the best, and right, and we isolate those, and then we make those in the lab, okay, and we okay. synthetically, in, you know, uh, produce these antibodies. They are naturally are found in people, all right. So all the synthetic antibodies that you're hearing about as monoclonals, these are antibodies that you know were isolated from people that have recovered. Right. And mm-hmm. so instead of just taking that whole mixture, we're, we're honing in on that one protein, that one antibody or two antibodies that actually give you the best defense. And then we're saying we're going to make those in the lab and then give it to you know, people as a therapy. So, yeah, so that's the difference between, you know, the passive immunotherapy that you're hearing about in the terms of convalescent versus monoclonal antibodies. Okay. And so the monoclonal antibodies, I know a lot of my listeners um, have been watching the news and the president who was recently infected with COVID-19 has been touting a particular treatment and that's Regeneron. So Regeneron is uh, what in particular in relation to those particular um, supportive care managements that you just mentioned? Yeah. uh, So Regeneron is a company, just so all your listeners know, sometimes our um, 
resident of the White House tends to say Regeneron as its uh, treatment, but Regeneron exactly. is actually a company. Um, right. So they, they produce an antibody cocktail, and this is basically two monoclonals, right? So two synthetic antibodies that they said they wanted to put into the clinic as a way of, of treatment, as a way of therapy. And so in their case, you know, their antibodies target, you know, that the virus in a certain way and, you know, have has been shown to help uh, protect those uh, and reduce infection uh, to some degree. But I mean, the, you know, these antibodies are currently in clinical trial, along with another company, Eli Lilly, they have antibodies in clinical trials. Uh, so there's, um, you know, as scientists, you know, we wait and see the data. And, you know, there's still a wait and see approach on whether or not antibodies are going to be effective at actually treating uh, patients. Um, I think already Eli Lilly has announced that, you know, they're clinical trials are uh, are shifting the endpoint, right? Because they didn't see any benefit of the antibodies for those that have severe COVID infection. Um, so that seems the earlier you give monoclonals, the better the outcome. But if you are already hospitalized or have been battling the infection for longer than a week, uh, there's probably no benefit, added benefit, I should say, of getting these antibodies. That's an interesting fact that I didn't know. Um, it's better to get it earlier in the course of infection if you're hospitalized versus later. And so I like that you mentioned that it's currently under clinical trial studies and that is not an actual treatment for COVID-19. And my listeners need to be aware of that. Um, this is not on the, out on the market yet. The president actually was able to get this through some particular um I yeah, guess emergency use authorization. Yeah. yeah, emergency use authorization. Um, So we wanted to make sure that that's clear. They also mentioned that the president also received a trial of antivirals. Um, Redemzivir, I think that's the name of the medication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So can you explain what that is and um, kind of like how does it attack uh, COVID-19? Uh, so I only know a little bit about small molecules. So I, again, my, okay. my research focuses on antibodies. Uh, but what I do know about Redemzivir is that it was a small molecule, so it's a mm-hmm. it's a drug in this in a typical sense that target you know the part of the virus that is necessary for it to make new virus, right? So part it, it targets the machinery after infection, right? So the way viruses work, right, is they they have a couple of viral proteins mm-hmm. that help them make new virus uh, once they enter your cells, and so remdesivir is a small molecule that targets some of those proteins that are necessary for the virus to replicate once uh, once it has infected an individual. And so I guess just last week, this is the first drug that has been approved by the FDA uh, mm-hmm. as a treatment for COVID-19. But again, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the data surrounding remdesivir as a treatment option shows, again, that the earlier you take it, the better it is. Kind of like Flonase or Flunase or whatever it is, the, the mm-hmm. flu drug. You know, the mm-hmm. earlier you take it, uh, the better the outcome. Um, oh, you Tamiflu. Yeah. yeah, Tamiflu. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Tamiflu, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, again, because what you're talking about here is stopping the virus from replicating. And I think this is an important point that people might not fully be aware of or, or quite understand is that some of the more severe COVID infections, right? People that are being hospitalized due to decreased blood oxygen levels, um, uh, you know, it, it impaired lung function. A lot of this is coming about after you have, to some degree, cleared the virus, right? Mm-hmm. So your body is actually working to neutralize the virus and clear it from your system. But what happens is you have an overactive immune system. 
And now the virus or the immune system is continuing to stay active despite you know, the virus being gone. And therefore, that's, again, because it's active in the lungs, this is causing huge problems. And I mean, I think that's something that's really important is that, you know, these drugs and monoclonal antibodies might not be as effective at treating severe patients because you're basically giving you some, giving the patient something for viral infection and for clearing the virus. Most of these patients no longer have active replicating virus at that level anyway, that, you know, is going to be, have an added benefit of getting these drugs or monoclonal therapies. Which is why the steroid uh, dexamethasone is mm-hmm. the go-to choice now for those that are on severe, you know, have severe COVID infection. Because in that sense, that is a steroid that's going to suppress your immune system to help it stop, you know, help your body stop attacking itself. So, I mean, that's, that's something important to note that, you know, treatment options, while we are developing them, you know, they mm-hmm. seem to work the best early in infection. And so far, there has been no treatment option outside of dex- dexamethasone that has shown been shown clinically uh, to be significant in reducing outcomes for severe COVID patients. Okay. And a majority of these trials of uh, medications that they're providing for these COVID-19 patients are on majority hospitalized patients. So it's not your average person that may present to your uh, primary care doctor's office or whatever with these symptoms that you know are receiving this treatment, right? Right. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that is discussions that are being had within the scientific community, within the medical community, is, you know, who has the highest benefit for these drugs, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you are someone that is at high risk, right, if you are someone uh, that's overweight, that has, you know, um, blood pressure problems, that has, you know, diabetes, that, you know, you're over the age of 65, in those 70s, and you come into contact with someone that then has been shown to have COVID-19 or be actively infected with the virus, mm-hmm. right? you're at a risk that, you know, there's potential there that you might be want to have these drugs options uh, before you present with your own symptoms, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that is where these drugs will be useful, right? So those, you know, el- the elderly patients, right, you know, outbreaks within a nursing home now, if you see a nursing home start to have an infection, mm-hmm. you know, maybe pushing these drugs to that nursing home to say, well, we're going to start all your patients on a treatment of rindesivir on a treatment of monoclonal, so that way, you know, they can be protected from, you know, uh, infection. I think this is where you're going to see these drugs really in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, for your day-to-day people, I mean, I, I, uh, again, I don't know if these drugs are going to be something that you would want to prescribe on a day-to-day basis, especially exactly. given the costs of these drugs. So now I want to kind of transition from the supportive type of treatments for COVID-19 to what has been prevalent in the past few weeks, and that is the potential for a COVID-19 vaccine. And we keep hearing this phrase, Operation Warp Speed. Can you kind of explain (coughs) what that means? Uh, Yeah. Uh, So Operation Warp Speed was a program that was put in place uh, for the rapid development and uh, distribution of of a vaccine of therapies to combat a growing pandemic. And so I think the term warp speed sounds scary. It sounds like it's things being rushed um, yes. and we're going faster, uh, which is mm-hmm. true. We are going faster, but we're not, you know, I think what is important to note and important to say is that safety steps are not being skipped. My friend and colleague, Dr. Kizmekia Corbett, who's a black female scientist at the NIH that mm-hmm. some of you may have seen on the on CNN on many different media platforms uh, you know she is 
kind of you know, one of the leaders behind one of the vaccine care candidates, in this case, Moderna. And she's been on the market telling people, right, that if you think about, you know, is it going to be safe? Well, the first vaccines of Moderna occurred back in March or in, in April, right? So we already have seven months of safety data for people that enrolled in that first phase one study. Same with the Johnson Johnson, same with the Pfizer, or I should say uh, Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines, right? The first enrollees occurred back in March, right? So we have safety data and monitoring that's still occurring for those individuals that first received those first doses. I think we're at the stage now where we have four candidates in, in this phase three trial, right? So mm-hmm. phase three is the biggest uh, clinical trial for, for most drugs in which we're enrolling anywhere from 30 to 60,000 people, depending on the company and the vaccine candidate. Uh, but in the case of Moderna, right, we've ar- they've already enrolled 30,000 individuals mm-hmm. that have received a dose or two doses of their vaccine. So again, you know, it's going fast. But, you know, we're not going to skip the safety steps. We're going to, you know, follow these people, make sure one is safe and then two, that it works. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the other part. Like, you know, we have to make sure it's effective at actually preventing you from getting the coronavirus. And so none of those are going to be skipped because I think, you know, if you think about a company, if you think about anyone, right, Mm -hmm. you don't want to put a product in the market and then that product fails especially given the importance of these vaccines uh, they are going to come to market for coronavirus. Because you don't want to, you know, society already has the lack of trust, you know, and there's already going to be a trust issue in overcoming that barrier. You don't want to give people additional reason to not trust the product that's going to come out. Uh, so I think these companies are being more transparent uh, mm-hmm. than you typically would see. In the scientific community, especially, the data is being shared, the data is being scrutinized, uh, external review panels are being held and uh, mm-hmm. on a weekly uh, basis to look at data and to analyze the data. So it's warp speed sounds crazy. Uh, it sounds mm-hmm. like it's going fast, uh, but it is going fast with all the safety steps still in play. So then people ask, well, then why does it take so long for other vaccines, right? Why does it take so long to Correct. do that's going to be my uh, next know. question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think one reason is because, you know, in this case, the whole world has stopped and focused our attention on one problem in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is unprecedented, right? We have never done this before. I mean, maybe the HIV pandemic, HIV AIDS, when it first came on the scene, was something similar. But never have we, you know, in the modern era, stop like this as a world and every research lab has focused our lab has switched you know our collaborators lab so now you have expertise in arenas that typically you aren't naturally in all focused on this one issue uh so i think the science the development of technologies has rapidly improved in past years for delivering vaccine products um you know the 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 techniques and the the platforms that are being used for delivering DNA vaccines. So much work has been done on these vaccine products in the years past for other diseases, right? For other viruses that, you know, there is data there um, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, people that have expertise in understanding that data. And so all this attention has now come into focus for just this one problem. Uh, and so we have a huge private and public partnerships, uh, both with the government institutions uh, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, we're all focused on the same issue. And so when you have that, you know, you can quickly make products, you can mm-hmm. quickly uh, analyze data, 
right? I'm not having to go collaborate. I'm not having to go, you know, ask, you know, for this or that. Like you can cut through some of the bureaucracy to some degree and move things a little bit faster without giving up the safety and the actual experimental side that is required. So, yes, I mean, I, I think that is one of the main reasons. And again, we're not giving up safety data. We're not giving up long-term uh, you know, safety data, right? So all these people that have enrolled in all these studies, they're going to be followed for two years, right? So we're going to continue to know what's going to happen with these individuals, you know, two years out. If you think about, you know, when people maybe start getting vaccinated for real in this country mm-hmm. and around the world, you know, you're looking at probably not until February, if we're being realistic, where people are going to start actually getting, receiving vaccine. Uh, so a lot of these studies will end uh, or will start having some of the data probably by the end of this month uh, into December. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, the data has to be so convincing and so overwhelmingly good before a needle is going to be stuck into anyone's arm with any one of these vaccine candidates. Uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, to all the listeners out there, you can be assured that, you know, the data will be scrutinized like no other because this is such a huge issue. We don't want to get it wrong. Uh, because mm-hmm. getting it wrong is the worst thing that could possibly happen uh, when you're entrusting the public to take a vaccine. Okay. Well, I'm definitely glad you clarified that specifically in regards to the term Operation Warp Speed in that no safety steps are being skipped in vetting and doing the research on this vaccine and how it's going to impact the general public. So that's good to know. So just in general, like what are the particular steps that goes into developing a vaccine? I know it basically starts with you looking into the research behind, okay, what can we do to attack this particular virus and then transition to the point of me as a doctor saying, okay, I can prescribe this and and it's considered safe and recommending it. So what are the particular steps? You mentioned phase three clinical trials. How do we get to that step? Yeah. So the, the process of getting any product to market, whether it be a vaccine or a drug or a monoclonal antibody therapy, uh, requires extensive work uh, on the back mm-hmm. end. Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. It starts with research labs. Uh, for the most part, a lot of the research that is being done in this country is you know, NIH government funded labs, mm-hmm. uh, which is why we should support, if I'm plugging anything, we should support measures to increase uh, government funding and research each yes. year. But, you know, it starts with us in the sense that we look at, okay, which components of a virus uh, may be the best at producing a response that you will want in a protective vaccine, in the case of a vaccine. Uh, So in this case, you look at the surface of this virus, of the coronavirus, uh, there's this large protein, like I said, mentioned before, called the Mm -hmm. spike. This is the protein that covers the surface of the virus. It's very large and it's necessary for entry into the, into, the host cell. And so we say, let's hone in on that one component. If we were to give that one component to an individual, you know, will that create a response that's going to be a protective response, right? So the first thing we do is figure out how we want to deliver that, right? So there's multiple platforms we're delivering uh, a vaccine or for creating a vaccine. In the case of the vaccines currently in the market, they're using, you know, your body's ability to make protein from DNA or RNA, right? So these mm-hmm. are the nucleic acids, the genetic material that can encode for certain types of proteins, right? So the Moderna vaccine, uh, the Johnson Johnson, all of these are nucleic acid-based vaccine candidates, meaning they're going to take the genetic material necessary for making the protein, give you that, and have your own body make the protein for a short period of time, 
And then, you know, your body's going to mount a response to that viral protein that has been made by your own body. Once you have that response, you know, then the immune system kicks in, right? It's mm-hmm. going to say, well, it's here's antibodies specific to that one spike protein. And on top of that, let's, let's keep this memory of this protein. So next time we see it, we can immediately make a response. We all know growing up, like you were here, you know, you know, you get sick once, like the sicker you get, the, the more healthy you're going to be as an adult, right? Because you have this memory, right? You have this memory right. of all these, all these illnesses. And it's kind of true. Like you have a memory uh, to help you uh, not get you know, get sick again, right? So going back to the process. So once we know the delivery, the next step is to do preclinical work. The preclinical side involves, for the most part, uh, unfortunately, you know, animal studies, you know, having a good animal model. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we know for coronaviruses, you know, a hamster or a mouse adaptive model for coronavirus are, are good starting models. Um, you know, in the case of like flu and things like that, ferrets, uh, the reason being is because these animals can actually sneeze. <laughs> they can actually cough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a respiratory virus, you want an uh, animal model that allows for the coughing and the sneezing uh, to occur. Um, so you know, Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so a lot of the flu vaccines and stuff are actually tested in, um, in ferrets uh, because of that very reason. Okay. Uh, then you move into uh, more you know, primate studies. Uh, so a lot of these vaccine candidates, actually all the vaccine candidates, I should say, have been tested in primates uh, mm-hmm. and, and rhesus macaques or a very similar primate, you know, which has, of course, uh, antibody or immune system more, most similar to ours. So that's the preclinical side. So if if all goes well in preclinical side, right, and mm-hmm. you show that your you know that your candidate therapy or vaccine is safe and you know, doesn't kill the animals, you know, is protective in the sense that you know you can give the vaccine. And then you can try to challenge the animal by presenting them with virus. Do they get sick? Right. If they don't get sick, that's a really good sign that you know the vaccine or therapy you're using is working. Or in the case of treatment, if you have a sick animal and you give them these treatments, do they get better uh, compared to the control animals? And that's the other way. Right. So once you have this preclinical data, then you manufacture it at the level that's going to be necessary for you know delivery into the human population, and you begin an enrollment of your study. So like, you know, a lab, I was just reading a paper this morning, mm-hmm. David Wiesler at the University of Washington, he's been really leading coronavirus basic research uh, since 2015. So his lab has been in position to understand these viruses more so than other labs around the country that just recently switched. They just developed a new vaccine candidate based off of one, a smaller component of the spike protein called the receptor bind domain. And they have made a new vaccine candidate and that, you know, shown in uh, animal studies and animal models that it works really well. Uh, and so now I can't remember the company, but a company has always picked it up and has started clinical grade manufacturing process or CGMP processing of that vaccine candidate. And so, yeah, you have to make enough of it. I mean, that's a huge thing. It's like, you know, you got to be able to make it show that it's stable, show that it's, you can distribute it. Uh, and this is something that, you know, keeps some people up at night, right? The logistics of actually delivering these products, uh, the right. cold chain that's required. So yeah, so that then moves into the clinic. Uh, and once companies usually license it, they have a pipeline of now enrolling phase one, which is just a quick safety trial, 40 healthy adults. Phase two is typically uh, upwards of a thousand uh, enrollees. Again, uh, it's a larger safety study that you may not pick up with 40. So again, this is a safety study to look at in a larger population. And then phase three uh, is your largest study. Uh, so not only are you looking, again, at safety, 
but now you're also looking at efficacy, right? Is this product doing what you claim it should do? Uh, so in the case of vaccine, is it protecting people from getting the coronavirus? In the case of a therapy, is it making those people get better? And I think sometimes what you see in clinical trials, if they're going very well, then you will see stopping of clinical trials because the the experimental arm, that's the arm of people that actually got the reagent, the treatment Mm -hmm. or the vaccine, are doing so much better than the control arm, right? The people that got the placebo. That you say, this is enough for us. We're going to continue this. But, you know, this is um, so, so compelling that we should consider moving forward and giving all the placebo arm the vaccine or the treatment because it's you know a, her, uh, a health emergency and we want to make sure that we're not depriving people of a possible therapy because uh, because it's so good. So I mean that that would be like the most ideal best case scenario that you would want to see. But in this case, like, we're not even doing that. Right? Trials are going to continue as as structured to make sure that they're safe. And effective. And then at the very end of the trial, we'll have all the data to go through and say, okay, this looks good. So yeah, after phase three, then you have a rollout. You have mm-hmm. a rollout of, you know, a number of people, usually your most high risk people. But even then there's follow-up vaccine trials. And so that's the other thing you talk about, the number of years it takes for things to go through. Mm-hmm. Typically you have a follow-up, you have follow-up trials. So like in the case of these current vaccine trials, almost zero children are being enrolled, right? Kids right. less than the age of 12, right, okay. are being enrolled. And so you would definitely want to go back. And after it's shown to be safe and effective in adult populations, to do trials with uh, children to make sure they're going to be safe with children. So I, I, I suspect that you won't see guidelines saying to vaccinate children uh, mm-hmm. with the, the vaccine that rolls out, because we don't know fully if it's going to be uh, safe and effective in children. Uh, so, I mean, these are, these are follow-up trials that will occur over the, over the next, you know, starting probably next year mm-hmm. uh, after we see that it's safe and effective in adults. Okay. That's great to know. Cause I was wondering, and you know, in regards to when you first do these clinical trials is focused on adults and then transition to children. So that makes sense. So you do post clinical trials after the vaccine is out on, to see if it would be beneficial to children. So I had a question regarding the the different phases of research on COVID-19, the vaccine itself. You said that, I guess, like in phase two, phase three, you have volunteers that participate in these trials, correct? So is there a particular age or population or they just choose anybody from the general public to enroll in these trials? Right. So typically uh, your phase one trials are healthy volunteers, right? You mm-hmm. you want to get the most healthy product, the younger, on the younger side, because, you know, these are the people that's going to amount, if they're going to amount a response, they're going to amount the best response. And if there's going to be safety problems, uh, you know, you're going to see those in healthy people. You know, phase two kind of expands on that a little bit. Uh, so they, there's maybe a, lo- a little bit larger age range. But again, you're, you're trying to take on healthy volunteers, not anyone with comorbid- comorbidities, you know, things of that nature, because you want to make sure that the components given to a healthy individual are safe and effective. Uh, so now you're phase three. Uh, that's where you really expand the enrollment. In all cases, you're trying to cover demographics, right? So that's why it's really important, uh, you know, if these trials are ongoing within your community to think about enrolling in some of these trials, because, you know, as a Black community, as a Hispanic community, you know, typically those are communities that are underrepresented in 
in vaccine trials, rightfully so. I mean, there's, I think, some fear in, in signing up. But at the same time, we need that data, right? We need people to volunteer. So, uh, you know, at the NIH, uh, you know, there's been a number, like, you know, like I said, Dr. Corbett, uh, some of her colleagues, Black colleagues have all received the vaccine. They're like, you know, we have to take on the vaccine, even the scientists to say, hey, you know, we need to do this for our community to make sure it's safe among uh, our demographics. So there are there are health disparities and health differences among individuals. And so we want to make sure we have data for everyone. So in your phase three trial, you really do want to try to expand uh, and cover all the demographics, racial demographics, sex demographics. You know, you may begin to include some comorbidities just to ensure, especially if it's, you know, in this case, you know, overweight, obesity is a huge issue. So you know, you may want to try to enroll uh, someone that, you know, has those, you know, those characteristics. So that way we can understand, you know, given to the general population where this is persistent, whether that, you know, is it the same effectiveness? So, so yeah, the phase three clinical trials is, is where you want to try to have the, represent the population as best you can. Okay. And so I'm glad that you mentioned that um, it's important for minorities to, you know, enroll into these clinical trials uh, for the vaccine, because I have been seeing reports. And that's what I want to ask you about, because number one, we already know that the African-American community, as well as the Latino community, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in regards to infections, as well as the higher rate of deaths compared to Caucasians. And there is some fear there within the in the community about signing up for these clinical trials. And can you expand on what that is and why, again, just reemphasize again, why is it important for them to enlist in these clinical trials? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that fear is rooted in, in history and we can't, uh, I mean, I think as a scientific community, we are, we are coming to uh, you know, this is coming to the, to the front of the line now, uh, especially mm-hmm. given the events of this past year and summer. And so, so yeah, I can understand that fear. And I, I see that fear uh, when I talk to people, you know, unfortunately, the flu vaccine each year, like, you know, Blacks and Hispanics are, are the least likely population to get vaccinated with the flu each year, uh, or get the flu vaccine each year, which this year, especially is important that you get the flu vaccine, because that's going to help protect you from, <laughs> you know, uh, and help keep, you know, you out of the hospital. If you do come in contact with the flu, right, the flu is still going to circulate this year on top of Correct. COVID. And so, I mean, it's really important, you know, that we do get, like, I got my flu shot a couple of weeks ago, get your flu shot, because that's going to help protect you uh, from going to the hospital with a you know, flu infection that can then lead to secondary infections and take up hospital space to treat those that are, you know, where we currently don't have a vaccine for COVID. Um, but going back to your question. So, yeah, I mean, I think the concerns that you see a lot is, you know, is, is it safe? Uh, and I think that's typically what you, what people want to know, is it safe? and and I can say, yes, I mean, the safety data is there. It's safe. I mean, as, as simply put, right, it, it is safe. Why we need people to enroll is because, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the response that is seen in the in the population that is affected the most, right, is going to be the response that we want as to be help you protect yourself. But without that data, like, we don't know. Like, maybe there is something that comes about that is different among Black or Hispanic individuals compared to Caucasian individuals. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I'm not saying there is. I'm just you know, suggesting mm-hmm. like if there is something, we will want to know because that is going to say, okay, well, you know, yes, we should move forward with vaccinating these communities or no, we shouldn't because, you know, this is something that popped up in, um, in the vaccine trial. You know, Black people have typically more hypertension, high blood pressure. 
So it's like, you know, is this, you know, could this lead to something as a side effect uh, that is not seen, right? So th- th- these are things that we need to know. And the only way you can know that is if people enroll in these studies and are monitored. Uh, so typically when you enroll in a study, you're going to get monitored, you're going to get healthcare. If anything happens, you know, they're gonna, you're going to get some of the best healthcare provided to you as you follow up with these studies. So, I mean, it's, it's a good way to enroll in something that is controlled and it's going to allow you to actually be taken care of if something does happen. But so far, so good. Um, I cannot reiterate this enough. So far, everything has shown that these vaccine candidates have been safe. Now we're just waiting to see if it's effective. Excellent. So you heard Dr. Barnes, we're encouraging everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And to if there is information out there for you to sign up for some of these clinical trials for adults, um, especially in the minority community, especially African-Americans, Latinos, please consider signing up for those phase three clinical trials uh, for the COVID-19 vaccine. So you already kind of talked about the different companies that are doing these clinical trials like Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Pfizer. With the vaccines that they're potentially going to be putting out on the market, is it like one dose or two doses that they may be potentially providing patients? Or is it what is it that as far as the administration frequency? No, that's that's a great question. And currently, I believe that Johnson & Johnson is the only company in which they are trying to administer a one-dose vaccine. But I'm not quite sure, so don't quote me directly on that. But one of of the four main candidates, one is trying to be a one-dose vaccine, uh, but all the others are two doses. And that's, that's really important uh, when it is time to get and distribute these vaccines uh, for your listeners out there. And so if you require a second dose, is important that you actually get that second dose uh, because that second dose is what's going to give you the protection you need. All right. So, uh, and this is because, you know, there's something in immunology called a prime boost strategy. So think about each year, right. Uh, or every 10 years or so, you know, I used to hate it, but right, you have to go and get your tetanus booster, right? Exactly. Um, we still do. You <laughs> yeah, still got to get your tetanus booster, right? Right. And that's because, you know, over time, you know, things decrease, uh, your immune system decreases. Uh, and so by getting that boost, you're, you know, you're giving your immune system ability to create a very strong response that, you know, may not occur from just that first initial injection. So you're basically giving your, uh, you're giving your immune system a boost. That's what it's called a boost for. You're giving it a boost to fight the virus, to protect you from the virus. So it's going to be really important, you know, when the vaccines are available to get your initial shot and then go back, you know, anywhere from three to four weeks later and get your secondary shot. And it's also important to know which company or which vaccine you got, you were administered in the initial uh, shot because, you know, you have to get the same one for your boost, right? So if you got a vaccine from from Pfizer, you can't go back 28 days later to the same pharmacy and they say, oh, well, we don't have the Pfizer one. You want to get the Moderna one? Like, no. If you got the Pfizer to start, you need to take the Pfizer on your second shot. So that's really important to know which which company, which uh, vaccine you got. And then it's going to be also just as important to make sure you get that second shot. Okay. So I know that these vaccines will be new on the market. And so like you said, majority starting off will be like two doses, except for one of the um, pharmaceutical companies uh, touting a one dose uh, vaccination. Will it be uh, as far as the frequency? I think it's probably too early to, to know. Um, will it be something that we need to get annually, almost like the flu or like you said, like the tetanus uh, vaccine where you may need to get it every 10 years? Like what is what are your thoughts or what have you been hearing? 
Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that is something that we're now just beginning to collect data on, right? So okay. what is the, what is the memory? What is, how long lasting is the immunity? And I think within the last two weeks, you've seen probably news reports saying, oh, well, your antibodies wane over time. This is typical. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes news reports are kind of alarm people uh, by their headlines, but, you know, upon infection, your body is going to stop producing antibodies once you have cleared their infection, right? There's no need for your body to put in energy uh, to make things that, you're, that you don't need. So over time, yes, you see a decrease in antibodies in your blood and your serum after you have recovered from infection. And that is very true. But what is also true, which is, as I mentioned this earlier in, uh, in our conversation, is that you create a memory, right? Your body mm-hmm. creates a memory so that upon re-exposure, you have a rapid response to clear that infection before it takes root. And that's really the key that we have to understand. You know, so I get the flu shot. I got the flu shot two weeks ago. You know, right now, I probably have a good amount of flu antibodies circulating in my blood. Okay. Mm-hmm. But come February, those antibodies are, have probably gone way, way down since I have not you know, gotten the flu. But say I were to come into contact with the flu, the way a vaccine works is now saying, here comes the flu, it entered my body. My body has a memory of those, of those proteins of that virus. Mm-hmm. So immediately it's going to snap into, uh, you know, it's going to wake up and go attack that virus and stop it before I even know that I was exposed to the flu. Right. So that's the way the immune system works. Uh, you know, this memory response is really important. So we're trying to understand right now exactly what is that memory response. And I can tell you uh, in literature that we're currently putting together, you know, we, we're looking, we're following up those people that we have worked on back in March. And we're finding out that, you know, their memory cells, right, the, the, the cells that give you that memory are still quite prevalent in those individuals. And so that's a good sign. That means we can we can pull out those cells, meaning that memory is there, is lasting. At least, you know, these are people at six months out, right? So, and their antibodies that are produced from these cells, these memory cells, are really good antibodies as well. So, I mean, I think that all bodes well for a long-lasting memory response and protection upon a vaccine a vaccination. Uh, but again, this is data that will continue to be followed up. So again, why you ask... Why does it take four years to move a, a, a vaccine typically to, to market? Well, because you usually want to have all of this data. Um, mm-hmm. But if you see that it's protective in this current pandemic where it's killing thousands of people a day here in this country, we cannot hold back, you know, if it's safe, we cannot hold back a treatment and a possible vaccine for those to help protect our, our population. Okay. So when this vaccine becomes available, is it going to be available typically, you think, to the general public, or will it be more so available at the beginning to the most vulnerable population, such as like the elderly greater than 65, people with comorbidities? What have you been hearing? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think what you will likely see first, uh, say, you know, the Italian trying to have 300 million doses ready by January. I mean, that's that is the goal of the generals involved in warp speed and you know, of, of our military that's you know really pushing uh, some of the science uh, department of defense is really pushing some of this and the idea here is to then yes 300 million doses means you can give two shots to 150 million people potentially and what you'll probably see is this will be localized here in the united states but also in our neighboring countries in europe this is not just going to be 
the United States, we get all 300 million doses. Um, right. That's something that's really important to note. It's like, you know, yes, we're manufacturing this, but this is going to be shared worldwide. And that's really important. So what I think you'll see, again, is, is people that are frontline workers, right? People that have a high risk of exposure getting the virus or getting the vaccine first. I think you'll see potential at-risk people. So those that are relatively younger, but you know, maybe have asthma or maybe have something that you know puts them a little bit cancer patients, right? That maybe put them at risk. I think you might see those individuals get the vaccine first. Outside of that, I'm not sure. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, because again, in these phase three trials, I haven't looked at all the data. I, I can't. I don't know off the top of my head. But you know, how me, what is the demographic age range, right? How many people have been enrolled over the age of seventy? Right, that's going to be really important to to note. You know, you know, does it work in those individuals? Or is their immune system working the same way? If there's a good proportion of people enrolled in these studies that are at risk and that they're over the age of say 65, 70, then yeah, I think you can then also push the vaccine into those into those arenas. But for sure, frontline workers, EMTs, doctors, nurses, people that come into contact with essential workers. I think those will probably be the people that you, you want to get uh, the vaccine out to first, right? Those working in the supermarkets, those working in, in mail and in, in these factories to keep our society going. I mean, I think those are the people, you know, if you want to open back up to society and open back up the United States are going to be some of the ones to get it the most, probably first, in my opinion. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that's what you would likely see uh, just because, you know, there will be limitations on the number of vaccines available. Okay. Lastly, I just had a question in general about what is, in your opinion, the vaccine, which is a preventative type of measure of uh, defeating COVID-19 versus particular treatment, like the different antivirals or the monoclonal antibodies, which one do you think is realistically uh, an option to defeat COVID-19? In this case, it's our best, our best hope is a vaccine. If you had a proven drug, that was cheap to make that we knew could protect you, right? So one thing about therapies is that they can be prophylactic, right? They can they can also prevent, not only treat, but sometimes they can prevent uh, infection, right? So in the case of antibodies, uh, this is something that we know works. And like I said, my background is actually in HIV research. And this is something that is being done as a preventative. And, you know, people in HIV also know you can use monoclonals or you can use, um, you know, Truvada, right? So if you give mm-hmm. people that are high risk the Truvada, which is a makeup of four different inhibitors of HIV, on a daily basis before, you know, that will actually protect them from getting an infection. It is proven clinically that you can use this as a prophylactic treatment, right? Problem is, it's just hard to distribute that much drug to everywhere uh, around the world. And it's hard to manufacture that much drug around the world, right? But say you were able to make this miracle drug that's no more, costs no more than an aspirin. And mm-hmm. I could take an aspirin, you know, a day for a month. Then, yeah, I mean, you could potentially rid the world of <laughs> of a disease if you were able to provide prophylactic, you know, treatment. Unfortunately, that's not the case, right? Our best case is to have a vaccine that can be administered and then your own body makes that response because the vaccine is a lot easier to produce, a lot easier sometimes to distribute. And if it's shown to work, then that's your best case scenario uh, versus, you know, asking someone to take a regimen of a drug every single day. But, you know, say, say none of these vaccines work, then our best case scenario is to, 
is for those that are most vulnerable, uh, use the antibodies, uh, prophylactic uh, antibodies, or antibodies is a prophylactic treatment, right? And so you can give them, uh, you can make antibodies longer lasting in your blood uh, by doing certain, you know, chemistry. And yeah, it may be, you know, four injections a year uh, for those that most at risk. But again, it costs too much money to make them. I mean, that's, that really comes down to money and production. It just costs too much to do that for a huge population. Okay. Well, you have given us a lot of great information today about the current supportive treatments that are available and definitely a a lot of great uh, information about the COVID-19 vaccine. Basically, from my standpoint and probably from most of my listeners, thank you for the work that you're doing um, in regards to us basically defeating this virus. I know. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And again, I just want to remind your listeners, it is flu season now as well. So please get your flu shot. I mean, this is something that is going to really help us this winter by decreasing the amount of people coming into the hospitals because of severe flu infection. So, you know, please get your flu shot. That'll help you uh, and it's safe. And then just, again, continue to wash your hands, wear your mask and until we are out of this. Excellent. And also, I want to make another plug too uh, for my listeners to definitely support our um, administration officials and elect those officials that support uh, National Institute of Health Research to support the work that uh, Dr. Barnes is currently doing and his other colleagues, because we need support of continued research like this to make sure that our overall population remains healthy and stays healthy. Before I wrap up this episode, I would like to give a quick update about the COVID-19 vaccine since my awesome conversation with Dr. Barnes. One of the four major pharmaceutical companies in phase three clinical trials announced promising results so far for the vaccine. According to a news article from Stat News, it noted that Pfizer and its partner company noted in an early analysis of the results from the COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial, showing that individuals who received two injections of the vaccine three weeks apart experienced more than 90% fewer cases of symptomatic COVID-19 than those who received a placebo. This is more promising than what was initially thought by researchers that a vaccine might only be 60% or 70% effective. In addition, it was recently announced by the current administration with the information that has been recently coming out about the top four pharmaceutical companies that are in phase three clinical trials, that the hope is that a new vaccine would be available for COVID-19, hopefully by April of 2021. However, I'd like to remind you that as Dr. Barnes told us that these studies are still ongoing and additional data could affect these preliminary results. So even though it's promising, we want to make sure that we continue to be patient as they complete these clinical trials to make sure that it's safe and effective against COVID-19. And with that being said, I want us to continue to remain optimistic that we can defeat this virus. And if you found any of this information to be helpful during this episode, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. And this is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.